Uh, but I do ask that you pay that you pay attention in particular uh, to note some of the same things that we heard in Malachi. So uh, it's really impossible to uh, properly understand this passage apart from uh, Malachi three and four. Hear now God's word. Inasmuch as many have undertaken to compile a narrative of the things that have been accomplished among us, just as those who from the beginning were eyewitnesses and ministers of the word have delivered them to us, it seemed good to me also, having followed all things closely for some time past, to write an orderly account for you, most excellent Theophilus, that you may have certainty concerning the things you have been taught." In the days of Herod, king of Judea, there was a priest named Zechariah in the division of Abijah, and he had a wife from the daughters of Aaron, and her name was Elizabeth. And they were both righteous before God, walking blamelessly in all of the commandments and statutes of the Lord. But they had no child, because Elizabeth was barren, and both were advanced in years." Now, while he was serving as priest before God, when his division was on duty, according to the custom of the priesthood, he was chosen by lot to enter the temple of the Lord and burn incense. And the whole multitude of the people were praying outside at the hour of incense. And there appeared to him an angel of the Lord standing beside the right side of the altar of incense. And Zechariah was troubled when he saw him, and fear fell upon him. But the angel said to him, Do not be afraid, Zechariah, for your prayer has been heard. And your wife, Elizabeth, will bear you a son, and you shall call his name John. And you will have joy and gladness, and many will rejoice at his birth, for he will be great before the Lord. And he must not drink wine or strong drink, and he will be filled with the Holy Spirit, even from his mother's womb. And he will turn many of the children of Israel to the Lord their God, and he will go before him in the spirit and power of Elijah to turn the hearts of the fathers to the children and the disobedient to the wisdom of the just to make ready for the Lord a people prepared. And Zechariah said to the angel, How shall I know this? For I am an old man, and my wife is advanced in years. And the angel answered, I am Gabriel who stands in the presence of God. And I was sent to speak to you and to bring you this good news. And behold, you will be silent and unable to speak until the day that these things take place, because you did not believe my words, which will be fulfilled in their time. And the people were waiting for Zechariah, and they were wondering at his delay in the temple. And when he came out, he was unable to speak to them, and they realized that he had seen a vision in the temple. And he kept making signs to them and and remained mute. And when his time of service was ended, he went to his home. After these days, his wife Elizabeth conceived, and for five months she kept herself hidden, saying, Thus the Lord has done for me in the days when he looked upon me to take away my reproach among people. In the sixth month, the angel Gabriel was sent from God to the city of Galilee, named Nazareth, to a virgin betrothed to a man whose name was Joseph of the house of David, and the virgin's name was Mary. And he came to her and said, Greetings, O favored one, the Lord is with you. 
But she was greatly troubled at the saying and tried to discern what sort of greeting this might be. And the angel said to her, Do not be afraid, Mary, for you have found favor with God. And behold, you will conceive in your womb and bear a son, and you shall call his name Jesus. He will be great and will be called the Son of the Most High. And the Lord God will give to him the throne of his father, David. And he will reign over the house of Jacob forever, and his, of his kingdom there will be no end. And Mary said to the angel, How will this be, since I am a virgin? And the angel answered her, The Holy Spirit will come upon you, and the power of the Most High will overshadow you. Therefore, the child to be born will be called Holy, the Son of God. And behold, your relative Elizabeth in her old age has also conceived a son. And this is the sixth month with her who was called barren. For nothing will be impossible with God. And Mary said, Behold, I am the servant of the Lord. Let it be to me according to your word. And the angel departed from her. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we ask now that you would send the same Holy Spirit who inspired this word to open our hearts to its truth. Please remove uh, us from the apathy, the cynicism, callousness, or rebellion so that we may really be hungry for this bread of life that feeds our souls, nourishes our hearts for your work, and fills us with the joy that is our strength. This we ask for the honor and glory of your dear Son and our dear Savior, Jesus Christ, in whose name we pray. Amen. I can assure you of this. No baseball this morning. Okay? We're good. Some of you are disappointed at that. That's okay. Um, this, this morning, as I, this week, as I was thinking about this particular text, and there's one phrase that came to mind, and, and because that phrase came to mind, there's an old song by a band called EMF, one of those one-hit wonders called Unbelievable. And that really basically sums up what I see in this text. It is unbelievable. What does unbelievable mean? One meaning is uh, something is too dubious or improbable to be believed. An, instant, uh, an occasion of that would be the one of the times, just one of the times, I missed curfew because my watch had decided to give up its ghost. And when I told my father that I was late because my watch had died, he found it a story that was too dubious or improbable to be believed until such time as I showed him the watch, which no longer functioned. I'm still not sure he believed me. But nonetheless, the other meaning of this word, unbelievable, is that is something so remarkable as to strain credulity, something extraordinary. And so this passage is filled with things which, which are so remarkable, so extraordinary, that they strain us to the point of, will, are we able to believe that which is taught in this passage? This passage contains much which in many ways is unbelievable. But the big idea this morning is that God's plan is so remarkable that it is hard to believe. We must recognize this. Let's start with a little preview, so to speak, to set up the whole book in the first few verses because Luke wants Theophilus to understand how this account of Jesus Christ came into being. It did not drop, drop from the sky. There were no secret tablets hidden somewhere that he unearthed and used a magic thing to translate. Rather, he says, 
that God's work in history, rather, God works in history to accomplish his plan. He says that many people, in addition to him, have put together these narratives of what God accomplished among the early Christians. Saying, I'm not the only one who has done this. He's recognizing that he had sources in this whole process, as well as those who worked alongside him to give the uh, gospel to other communities, people like Matthew and Mark, John, and possibly there are even others, okay, whose gospels we have never discovered because God in his providence has decided... We don't need those. We just need these four. Okay? But these narratives are based, he says, on eyewitness accounts of events that unfolded. There is an aspect here that this is verifiable. You could go back to Jerusalem and the places that are mentioned and find some of these people still alive. This is probably about uh, early 60s because... Luke and Acts come together, and Acts ends with Paul going to Jerusalem. So he's still alive. We don't, he doesn't say what happens. So this is about A.D. 60. So there's still people from that first generation of Christians that are alive that can verify they saw, they heard these things, or they know the people who saw and heard these things. Verifiability. It happened in space and in time. Not only that, but these people lived what they believed. They were ministers of this word. They were committed to communicating it. Theophilus. Okay, Luke wants him to be certain of the things he has been told. But not just that. He also wants the uh, Theophilus to begin to be earnest about communicating it. To, his, to not just be a recipient of the word, but a minister of the word, and to bring it to other people. And the same thing, this, this book is written for us, that we might be certain of that which we believe, so that we can be ministers of that same word and bring it to other people. It is not meant to stop with us. It is meant to be given by us who have received Luke says one other thing, that he investigated these things. He, 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 he poured over these things. He compared notes. He checked it out so that he, too, was not fooled. And so what we find in this narrative is factually true and theologically significant stories. Not just any stories, but the idea that they are theologically significant. There's a point in what is contained there. So that's our introduction, I think, to what is going on in Luke. So let's get to the text itself and what happens. And we see first off that God called very different parents into his plan. We're going to see two slightly different appearances by the same angel, Gabriel, to two very different people to give similar messages. And the first part is that the difference in the parents... But we see first off that it is the angel Gabriel who is consistent to all of this. He declares that he is one who is a high-ranking angel. He is before the presence of God. He's up there with Michael, the other archangel, so to speak, that is there. And he makes two appearances specifically to unfold the plan of what God is about to do, how he is going to fulfill that which he promised in the Old Testament. I'm going to look at this through the gaze of one and the other, sort of a comparison. And so we have advanced in years versus a betrothed virgin. 
And as we look at these two people, uh, we see that neither of these people, in a sense, should have had kids. Okay, we see Zechariah and Elizabeth, who are advanced in years. They are older. Their time for having children, apparently, is done. Okay? They had tried for decades, but had experienced futility, and, and Elizabeth had experienced the um, reproach of being barren. Miriam, that's what it says in Greek. I don't know why we translate it Mary. <laughs> Miriam, okay? Miriam was a teenager, most likely. She was young, she was betrothed, she was a virgin. She was just getting started in life. There, there was, you know, there's no reason she should have had a, ch- a child whatsoever. Okay? The word that is used here indicates, in fact, virgin. Someone who is chaste. Okay? So, uh, some people will go back to Isaiah and they'll say that the word translated, uh, a virgin in Isaiah can be also mean a young maiden, this sort of thing. Yes, that's true. In Isaiah, that word, that Hebrew word can mean that. But in both this account and in Matthew's account, the word that is used is very specific and it means not young maiden, young woman. It means virgin. We're sticking to that. Okay? It's unbelievable, but it's true. It's, it's remarkable, it's extraordinary, but it's true. Beyond that, we see in the, the idea of the advanced years, we see, we, the, the text mentions that Zechariah and Elizabeth were righteous, they were just, they were obedient, to, they had this long track record of obeying God, not perfectly, but they were people who were concerned with God and His law and, and sought to walk in obedience by faith. Miriam, a mere teenager, was just getting started. So she's very different from them. There's no track record. There's no, no pattern of reliability that goes on. And so we might think that in some senses, God was pretty smart in picking Zachariah and Elizabeth, you know. But would you pick a teenager? Do you know any teenagers? Okay. I'm sure it was different then before Nintendo, right? But still. Why was God picking this person to be a part of this plan? So we have advanced in years versus betrothed virgin. We also have barren versus virgin. Elizabeth was sterile, the text says. She was infertile. Mary or Miriam was just a chaste kid. She had her little love weights thing. I don't know. Um, but it doesn't matter. This is who she was. We see another difference that arises between them because Aaron, I mean, sorry, yeah. both Zechariah and Elizabeth were from the line of Aaron, from the priestly line, and yet Mary and Joseph were from the line of David. So we have the priestly line versus the kingly line. The first vision of the angel, the first visitation of the angel takes place when Zechariah is on task. Okay? There are, there are 24 divisions amongst the, the, uh, the Aaronic priesthood. And so twice a year, your division would show up for ministry at the temple. And when that happened, they would cast lots to see who did what. Okay? There, there was no, uh, you know, you always did this, you know, you know, uh, where 
George always trimmed the candles. And, uh, you know, Paul always polished the altar and uh, that sort of... They, they cast lots. The most prestigious thing to do, aside from the Day of Atonement, was to go and to burn at the altar of incense. You could only do it once in your lifetime. This was a special event. And here it is. This is the culmination. The, the most important thing you can do, okay, just about, as a priest, Zechariah gets to do it. Okay? So imagine that for a moment. This is the highlight of his career as a priest. And he goes into the temple. He goes into the holy place where no one can see him. He goes to light. And while he's in there, everyone outside is praying. And it is there that he sees Gabriel. Or rather, Gabriel appears to him. His best day just got better. But it's about to get worse. Okay? So, not only are the people outside praying, but as he is lighting the incense, he too usually would be praying. And the incense, as we see from, from Revelation, often represent the prayers of the, of the people rising up into the presence of God, a sweet aroma. He loves to hear the prayers of his people that should encourage us to pray. This invites us into one of the other contrasts, the temple in Jerusalem versus Nazareth. You expect to have extreme religious experiences like the visitation of an angel in a place like a temple in Jerusalem, which was the holy place for the Jews. You'd sort of expect that, right? That's not... Something it's it's a little unbelievable, but it's not out of the ordinary. If you're reading this, you'd expect it to take place, but you would not expect Nazareth. It's unbelievable that an un, that an important angel before the throne of God would appear to a teenager in Nazareth of Galilee. That's like a border town, okay. Instead of showing up at Washington, D.C., it's like showing the angel of God showing up at this insignificant town on the border of Arizona or New Mexico. You know, it just doesn't make sense. The, the, the significance of this place seems, you know, to be non-existent on the, the, the religious map. It's all these Gentiles in Galilee. Okay? This is not a pure place. This is not a holy place that Gabriel shows up to, and yet he shows up. And so as we think about this, we see that there is no particular type of person that God calls for a task. You can't, you know, kind of develop the profile of a person, aside from the fact they know God. These two people couldn't have been more different in many ways. And yet the same God sends the same angel to give them a message that they are a part of his plan. They were both unprepared. These messages were unexpected. They were unbelievable. So we see that the sovereign God calls people he wants to serve 
a part in his unbelievable plan. So let's move from the parents to the children, and then we see that the promised children have different roles in God's plan. They're part of the same plan, but they have different parts in that plan. Both of these children are going to be great, according to the text. They are going to be significant players in God's plan, and yet their part will be significantly different. I sort of see it in the way in which the initial call of the, of the angel comes about. He says to Zechariah, your prayer has been heard. He says to Mary that you have found grace or favor. What prayer had been heard? Was it the, probably the ongoing prayer for a child? which would have been his personal ministry, or was it perhaps his ministry as the priest entering into the most holy place, praying along the lines of Malachi 3.1, that God would show up and purify his temple, that God would send the Redeemer. The indications from the grammar would be that it is probably that God would show up and, and, and send the Redeemer, but it's tied to the longer ongoing prayer of a child. God has both prayers. He's going to give them a children for the express purpose of fulfilling his redemptive plan of a Messiah. Now, this child is not the Messiah, but he will be connected to the Messiah. On the other hand, we see that Miriam was an ordinary person. She was not a priest. She was not significant uh, uh, to the cult in Israel. And yet she is a person who found grace with God, a very unusual grace, as we shall see. Okay. Part of what Gabriel does, he says, you shall name the child this. And it's not actually a command, it's just kind of a predictive statement of fact. And the, the first child is going to be named John, and that name means um, that the Lord is gracious. And it reflects his task, his role, because he's going to have a ministry of restoration. He is going to make known the graciousness of God. He is the one who comes like Elijah in the spirit and power of Elijah. He is going to be a prophet. And Jesus will say later that he was the greatest prophet up until that time. The greatest prophet of the Old Testament, the Old Covenant, was John the Baptist, who comes in fulfillment of Malachi 4 as Elijah to God's people. He is there to prepare God's people for the Messiah. And it speaks about the vertical reconciliation that must take place between the people and their God, but also the, the horizontal reconciliation that's supposed to take place, just as it talks about in Malachi. Luke quotes that. He's going to restore relationships between generations, turning the father's hearts to their children and the children's hearts back to their fathers. Restoration, reconciliation, peace are going to play out because of the ministry of John, who shall be called the baptizer. Note that it says, he will bring great joy to many. Now, doesn't that sound unbelievable? Think about your image of John at this moment. 
Is that a guy that would be characterized by joy? Is that a guy who's going to be the life of the party? Who, ah, John's here! <laughs> the guy in the camel you know, skin and eats the locusts and honey. We're glad he showed up. The guy who talks about God's got his winnowing fork ready. You know, that's the guy we're excited is here. Those who long for the redemption of Israel were glad John was there. Okay, we have to look past the the superficial and outward. Uh, you know, John's kind of weird. To what he did, however, and preparing a people for God brought joy to the people who longed for Messiah to come. The second child is named Jesus, Joshua. The Lord is salvation. He is going to be greater than John, precisely because he is the Messiah that John prepares the people to receive. We see this in, in, when John speaks in Luke 3. John answered them all, all these people who are wondering if he was the Messiah, I baptize you with water, but he who is mightier than I is coming, the strap of whose sandals I am not worthy to untie. He will baptize you with the Holy Spirit and with fire. Catch that. John says, I'm not even worthy enough to take off his shoes. That was the work of the lowest servant in the household. And John is saying, compared to him, I am not even worthy to be the lowest servant in the household, that's how much greater he is than I am. I'm baptizing people with water, but he has the power to baptize with the Holy Spirit, to radically transform lives, to baptize with fire. And so Jesus comes not only to bring the salvation of God, but he is, in fact, the salvation of God in a person. We see that Jesus' greatness is revealed in in some of what he is going to be called, according to Gabriel, he's going to be called Son of the Most High God. He's going to be called the Son of God. John is great. Jesus is far greater. Another point of contrast between them, John was filled by the Spirit, whereas Jesus was conceived by the Spirit. But let's note for a second here, we've, we've talked about God before whom Gabriel stands. We've talked about this one who is going to be, the, who is the Son of God. And now we're talking about the Spirit. Luke, from the outset of his gospel, is Trinitarian in nature. It's going to carry through. Because all that what Jesus does, he's going, to, he's going to do full of the Holy Spirit. We have to be Trinitarian people, brothers and sisters. We can't neglect the ministry of the Holy Spirit. We cannot focus just on the Son. That does not make us Christians. Because when we are 
we have the Son, we also have the Father, and we enjoy that through the power of the Holy Spirit. We come into fellowship with the whole Trinity, not just one or two members of this heavenly community. And John is basically, uh, Luke is basically laying that out for us even from the beginning. So John is filled by the Holy Spirit from conception. Hadn't made a profession of faith yet. Actually, I guess he does in the womb when Mary shows up and he leaps. We're going to get that that next week. You know, he's going to leap in the womb. He's so excited. You know, There's, that's unbelievable. Okay, that stretches us in our in our in our attempts to try and get everything as Presbyterians neat and tidy in our theology. Right? Okay, there's something there that is a little beyond us. So he is filled from the, with the Spirit even from the womb, from conception. This was going to empower his ministry of uh, preparation for Messiah, but we see that Jesus in, is instead conceived by the Spirit. God is going to come, and God is going to overshadow her. Now, this is important in a number of ways. Luke is distinguishing this from the Greek myths of the day. Okay? It was There were children from the gods that were part god, part human. Perseus, Hercules, they, they were, the gods would chase women. This is not like that. Okay? He's setting it apart. This is something different. It's, and this, that's an important thing to understand, particularly the, the idea of Jesus the Son of God is offensive to Muslims because they sort of think of it like the Greek myths. And we have to, you know, point out, no, it's different than that. It's not crass. It's not ugly. But what's meant to happen here is for us to think of Genesis 1 and how the Spirit brooded, overshadowed creation and brought things back into shape. That's what's happening, an act of creation where John's conception took place through normal means and yet God superintended it because those means hadn't worked in the past. He made them powerful and effective. This is going to be apart from the ordinary means. This is a miracle accomplished by God, the Spirit, for our good. Okay? And so these two children will have two long-awaited roles in God's unbelievable plan of salvation, of redemption. Let's move lastly to the different responses of parents and knowing that those different responses don't derail God's plan. Here we have, first off, Zechariah, godly Zechariah, the priest Zechariah. The person who you think would be most open to what God is going to reveal to him, he thought it was unbelievable. He says, how shall I know this? The angel says it's a statement of unbelief. Really, Zechariah? Have you heard of Abraham? Okay. This should not have been a stretch of the imagination for Zechariah precisely because as a priest he knows and he teaches the Old Covenant. 
He's got the scrolls. He's teaching the people. He's seen God do this in the past. Why is this a stretch of the imagination that he and his wife should have a child even though they're advanced in years? Unbelief. Godly man, moment of unbelief. We're all prone to it. Let us not judge him so much as tremble because we could be just like him. And so God chastises him. He doesn't say, oh, you don't believe it, therefore I'm moving on to the next couple. Okay? It's, God does not reject Zechariah and Elizabeth. He still uses them as part of his plan, but there is a chastisement in that Zechariah is made mute until such time as, as we'll see later on. Okay? But he comes out of the temple. Everyone knows it's been, he's been in there far too long. Something happened and he can't tell anybody what's going to happen. He's got the, some great news and he can't tell anybody. Okay? That's part of the chastisement. He used his lips to express unbelief and now he cannot use his lips to express what God is going to do. At least yet. Later he will be able to. So, we have that. He did not take the word of Gabriel at face value. He wanted proof. Then there's Miriam with her statement. How will this be? She's not expressing unbelief. She's curious as to the mechanics. Because she says, I'm a virgin. How is this supposed to happen? You know, is is it going to be with Joseph or something else going to happen here? She's curious as to how, not denying whether it will. And we see that she, in a sense, responds in faith. She is the servant of the Lord who looks to him and seeks to obey that which he says. I thought of Psalm 123, verse 2. Behold, as the eyes of, a servant, of servants look to the hand of their master, as the eyes of a maidservant to the hand of her mistress, so our eyes look to the Lord our God till he has mercy upon us. She has her eyes focused, so to speak, upon God as her master, waiting for indication of what she should do to bring about the mercy upon his people. She embraces God's plan. She embraces God's purposes for her, even though it makes no sense, and she probably hasn't done all of the math as to all of the burdens that this will place on her, or potentially could place on her. What's Joseph going to do? You know? Though it was extraordinary and remarkable, she's willing to go with it. What do we do with some of these unbelievable claims that the gospel makes? Aren't we tempted sometimes to sort of be like Thomas Jefferson? Get out our penknife, start cutting out passages of scripture as an enlightenment modern or postmodern person. There can't possibly be angels that appear. 
Oh, there can't be a virgin birth. (laughs) Recognize that there is much here for the modern mindset to stumble upon, to stumble over, to think not as remarkable and extraordinary, but to begin to think of as too dubious to be believed. Think of your neighbor. Angels? Now, they might be part of the new agey people and go, cool, angels. Okay? But they might be like many post-enlightenment people. Yeah, angels. That's cute. I know now not to trust you about anything you say about politics or anything. You know, economics, you're out. (laughs) You believe in angels. Okay? All of the... God does, Luke does not hide the stumbling blocks from Theophilus' eyes. Right from the beginning, he lays them out. Yes, we believe in angels. Yes, we believe in a redeemer. Yes, we believe in a virgin birth. Yes, we believe he's the son of God. Yes, we believe this. Though remarkable and extraordinary, we believe this. That's what Luke says. And he wants Theophilus to be certain that this is true. Are you certain that this is true? Are you still kind of stumbling over that? I still can't, you know, can you still have a hard time wrapping your mind around these things? Are, are you thinking about the scriptures from the perspective of someone who has been poisoned by modernism, materialism? That can't happen. And judging the Scriptures instead of receiving the Scriptures. But we have to recognize, we have to realize how strange it is to the ears of our friends and our neighbors as we present it. Don't hide it. But just recognize that it's going to sound weird to some people. So the claims of the Gospel... God incarnate, virgin birth, angels, redemption on a cross, resurrection of all things. All these sound too remarkable to be believed. And in fact, the unregenerate heart finds them too dubious to be believed. But they are a reminder that nothing is impossible with God. That those who believe in this unbelievable message have been entrusted to pass this same unbelievable message on. Whether you're young or you're old, whether you're male or you're female, whether you're blameless or you're a bungling teenager, if you have been redeemed by God, if you have been called into His fellowship through the blood of Jesus Christ, then you have a place and a part of service in that same kingdom, that same family. Will you embrace it? Will you take it up? Will you find joy in it? Let's pray. Father, there's uh, so much here that sounds too extraordinary. But we recognize that the ordinary, the status quo, the normal, the things we can conceive of were not sufficient to save us from our sin. And while you condescend to speak so that we may understand There are some things that you say and do that are beyond our experience. 
they are extraordinary. And we confess that sometimes we struggle to believe some of these things. And if we struggle to believe them, we really struggle to communicate them to others. Sometimes it's out of fear that we will be seen as superstitious and weird. But may the same Spirit that dwelled in John and overshadowed Mary empower us not only to believe the unbelievable, but to boldly proclaim the great news of what has been done for us by your Son, Jesus, that he might save us from sin. And we ask this in his name. Amen.